Dear World. You are listening to the Awoken Word Podcast, and I am your host, Anudra Stogie. This year is off to quite a start for the world. As you all know, the current war in Gaza persists. It's actually entering its fourth month. It's hard to imagine that it would take any less than one full generation, if not more, to heal the wounds of this moment. There's no obvious medicine for the deep civilizational trauma that the last hundred or so days have rained down on the lives of over two million people. And when it comes to children, well, no matter what part of the world they're born into, every single child is infinitely precious. But before we keep moving, let me just make it clear where I stand on all of this. There should be absolutely no room in our world for hate of a group of people, whether that be anti-Muslim bigotry or anti-Semitism or any other kind of ism that involves hate. We cannot hold an entire group of people responsible for the actions of a few. Hate will not heal us. Hate will not make you feel better. Hate will just burn the whole world down. But don't get it twisted. Just because you criticize the policies, decisions, or actions of another country, its leaders and politicians, doesn't mean that you are criticizing all of its people for who they are. It's our responsibility to raise our voice and hold all leaders to account, be that here at home or somewhere else. Now, all that said, it is my belief that most people in all parts of the world are generally good, so long as their circumstances allow that choice. Most people just want to live in peace, dignity, and security. Most people would rather help than harm, which is why today's episode is perhaps the most important, most difficult, and most moving conversation I've had on Awoken Word. There are very few who would sacrifice so much by choice to go and serve humanity in conditions that nearly everyone else runs away from. My guest today is Dr. Yasser Khan. Yasser is a renowned ophthalmologist, educator, entrepreneur, traveler, international man of mystery, father, husband, and humanitarian. He has served people in need on volunteer missions in over 40 countries. At the turn of the new year, against many odds, Yasser made his way to Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza to volunteer and to help directly and my conversation with Yasser took place on January 29th, exactly 20 days after his return to Canada. Here in this conversation, Yasser shares the experiences that shaped him while he was growing up, his inspiration for becoming a physician, what being human and being humanitarian mean to him, his experiences with people around the world, the importance of service to others. Now, all of this is just his origin story, leading up to the moment where he shares his journey into Gaza from the moment he first utters the wish to go and help to crossing the Rafah border and his terrifying nighttime ride into Khan Yunus under the haunting darkness of war. He shares his admiration and stories for the healthcare providers at the Gaza European Hospital in Khan Yunus. He describes the generosity of the Palestinian people in the midst of this chaos and carnage. And last, he shares his views on the plight for dignity now, for some listeners, especially young children, I must warn you, this conversation may be a little difficult to listen to because we hear about 
the horrifying injuries and the surgeries that Yasser both witnessed and performed. I was humbled to my core by his humanity, his time, his sacrifice, and his humility. And now I give you my conversation with Dr. Yasser Khan. This podcast is my humble attempt to be a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. I'm here with Dr. Yasser Khan. Yasser, it's saying it's a pleasure to meet you is understatement. You're an ophthalmic surgeon. You're a trekker, I believe, like you climb mountains. You're a comic aficionado, entrepreneur, and you recently came back from Gaza. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's hard to know where to begin. First of all, I heard you on Matt Galloway's show on the CBC, and I couldn't, I couldn't quite comprehend what I was hearing, that a man from Canada decides to step out of this world and, and safety and, and go to Gaza in a situation that is incomprehensible to anyone outside of it, that you would go and at such sacrifice and such risk to spend the time <clears throat> there and to, to help people. But before we get there, I'd really love to understand, like beyond these titles... Who are you? How did you end up being the person that you are today? And what would you say are like the most critical moments in your life that kind of shaped who you are? Who am I? That's, I think for most of us, that's like a billion dollar question because to be honest, I'm still figuring out who I am. And I really think that who you are is a lifelong journey. And we change as time goes on. Things change us. Circumstances change us. So I think we're constantly finding out who we are. Currently, I'm a father, husband. I am an ophthalmologist specializing in eye plastic surgery. So I do a lot of facial and reconstructive work, both for tumor, trauma, and even cosmetic as well. And beyond that, I think things that I really are definitive about me is I am a lifelong humanitarian. And over the course of a 20-year career, I've traveled to I'd say over 40 different countries around the world, both in Africa, Asia, South America, and uh, you know, done a lot of humanitarian work. I've, I've developed and built programs in my subspecialty. I've done surgery. I have uh, taught a lot of surgeons, a lot of students. I've given a lot of lectures. And so it's taken me a, a long ways. And, and I think being a humanitarian, looking after humanity is just part and parcel of what I do. It comes naturally to me. It's what I believe in. Right. Let's back up. There's the humanitarian, but there's the human. So did you always want to become a physician? Was ophthalmology always the thing that you had in mind? Or how did this path kind of find you? So, you know, as far as I can remember, I remember uh, being like eight or nine years old, you know, as far back as, as your memory goes, right? So I remember I was eight or nine years old. You know, all my friends wanted to be either a policeman, a fireman, a soldier, Although nowadays, I don't think I want to be a soldier at all. Pilot was the other popular one, right? But I always want to be a doctor for some reason or the other because of different things. I, I believe now because of different things that happened to me in probably early childhood. I did not come from a medical family. Okay. My dad was in banking and finance. But I want to be a doctor since I was uh, 10 years old. And, and then I went to school, still want to be a doctor. I went to junior high, high school, university. 
and that passion was still there. And, and was there like specific incidents that happened along the way? Like, did you encounter a doctor and think, this is what I want to do? Well, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, I do remember, uh, you know, our life is, especially our younger life is filled with memories. You have these memories, right? And so I was born in Pakistan. When I was uh, two or three years old, we, uh, my dad was in banking and we moved to Beirut, Lebanon. So I spent about seven, eight years in Beirut, Lebanon. And life in Beirut, from what I remember, was good and bad. I mean, my parents to this day say that the best seven, eight years that they spent of their life was their time in Beirut. Mm. So, I mean, Lebanese people are social. They like to enjoy life. It's a Mediterranean country. The, the weather is nice, mostly. There is the uh, sea. Uh, there's just the environment. And they're just happy people, very resilient people, Lebanese in general. So I think they really enjoyed it. Uh, but of course, Lebanon had its issues. Lebanon went through several civil wars. Right. And uh, so I do remember twice we had to evacuate because the civil war, civil war got really bad in Beirut. I've got this memory when I was probably about eight, nine years old. And what would happen is that when they'd be like bombings and they'd be, uh, you know, fire and I think it'd be airplanes flying over you, you know, Lebanon, we didn't have houses. Everybody lives in flats and buildings, right? right. Unless maybe you go outside. But in Beirut, everybody lives in, in these apartments, right? And so we would all go, the whole apartment building would just go down to the basement, which apparently was the bomb shelter or whatever you want to call it. And uh, so I, I remember a couple of times going, and my earliest memory is being down in the basement, having like this, this, this yellow dim lit light. We're all in the basement. You know, I, I saw this look of panic and worry on my mother and my father's face. I remember my siblings being with me. And there's families down there because it was, it was an apartment building. Right. And uh, the, the thing I remember is that there was one person that was going around, you know, kind of making people feel better and feel good. And we always knew him as the doctor uncle, right? Okay. So yeah. he, was like a, yeah. he was like a physician. And he was making people feel good. Nobody was injured. And I think that probably is my first exposure to medicine. I think that that's probably what kind of motivated me to, to go into medicine. So we may want to come back to that a little bit yeah. later, because, but I'm, I'm curious, do you remember how you felt in those moments? You're talking about seeing the concern on your parents' face, your siblings' face, but do you remember how you felt then? I felt reassured. I, I was with my parents. It was dark and cozy. I did not at that point. I mean, yes, I, I remember hearing stuff in the background. Probably now I think that there are bombs, but I remember being secure. And I remember uh, people just, you know, as, as a child, you don't, know any better and i remember this physician coming and making sure everybody's okay and i think some people had some ailments whether it's a stomach ache or a cough or whatever and he was just making sure that everybody's okay i felt reassured and safe hmm. believe it or not okay so somewhere deep down that i imagine experiences like this kind of shaped you wanting to be that for somebody else at yeah. some point in time when you think about the world that you grew up in Pakistan, your time in Lebanon, moving to Canada. I just discovered, as I was mentioning to you, that we grew up in the same city, or at least for part of our life, Edmonton. you both uh, spent time in Edmonton. When you look back at that time and you think about the world ahead for your children, do you see this, like our moment today being much different than the moment that you grew up in? Like, do you, do you reflect on what the world is like for them in their age and what it'll be like for tomorrow versus what you experienced? You know, 
I think on one hand, my children are blessed to be in a country like Canada. There's, uh, especially since coming back from Gaza, especially. But also growing up, Lebanon was never stable, right? There was always that instability. There's always, you're one gunshot away from another civil war between different factions erupting, right? Then also there's the neighbors and, and things like that. There's Syria, Israel, everybody's, you know, it's, it's a very hot area. But coming here, we have peace, stability, and security. And sometimes we take that for granted. So I think that's been a, a, a big blessing. You know, the last 114 days since this war in Gaza started, I think it's changed a lot for a lot of people. It's changed a lot for me as well. And, you know, it's changed how I view humanity. And it's really caused me to worry about where we're heading as a, as a world and where we're heading as human beings. So this was the first active war zone, if I understood, that you've been in in the 40-plus the countries that you spent yeah. time in. But I'd love to understand, like, where else in the world have you been and what have been the circumstances that brought you there? Faith is a big part of what I do. Right. And uh, faith, really, I, I think it is one unifying force for me. It's faith, right? And so because I think that God blessed me with the skills and knowledge that I have, I really feel it's an obligation for me to use the skills and knowledge that I have in a way that helps humanity. I right. really think that's the purpose of life. It could, be, it could be anything. I mean, if you're a painter, you can find places to paint. And, or, or, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a baker, food is a big issue. You can find, you know, people who are hungry and starving. There's famine everywhere. There's, you know, Gaza has no bakeries left, for example. You can find places to bake. So I happen to be a physician and a surgeon, and I've got a specific skill set that I can use. So that's always driven me. Plus, I've got the knowledge that I've always loved to teach. I've been a lifelong educator. So what took me to these different countries was that I said, you know what, there's a need here. Can I fulfill that need? And I was very careful where I went because I didn't want to go somewhere just for the sake of going. Mm -hmm. Most of, almost 95% of my travel, and I do travel a lot, is with a purpose. It's not just to go on vacation. I do have my odd vacation where I do nothing but vacation, but about 95% of my travel is usually for a purpose, either, either to give a lecture, to teach, to do surgery, to build programs, and yeah. And when you come back, I'm trying to picture, as, as a father myself, like I've got two young kids. Every now and then if I go away for a few days for any reason, even in the most mundane and normal of circumstances, in which I'm going, you feel it a little bit. And I'm trying to comprehend how you pick up, you know, what, what, what is the conversation with your kids when you're going somewhere? What is it that they think that daddy is doing when he's away? And when you come back, I imagine this is going to be a little bit more exasperated in this recent case, but like, how do you comprehend the experience that you just had when you come back here? Like, how do you even unpack that and go back into your everyday? The simple answer is I just do it, but qualifying that, I have actually, you know, where it's been safe, I've actually taken my kids with me. I've taken the family with me. I've taken either one or two of the children, or I've taken the whole family with wow, me. Okay. So they've volunteered. So, so, so from a very, uh, very young age, I remember I went to Beirut. Uh, Beirut has, so as you know, the Palestinian people have been displaced for 75 years. Right. Many of the refugees went and they've lived for 75 years uh, in these refugee camps surrounding Beirut, okay? They're stateless people. They have no status, no state. They're almost a forgotten people because everybody forgets about these re refugees that have, that have been living there for 75 years in these ghettos, right? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so we would go to, uh, there was an NGO that invited me to come. So I would go to Lebanon and I went back actually as an adult, which was quite a neat feeling. I went, I went back after 28 years for the first time. We would take these Palestinian refugees uh, into Beirut uh, and operate on them for free, basically, you know, doing eye surgery. And so uh, one year I went, I took my whole family with me. And so they got involved and whatever they could. I mean, it was a whole, uh, it was like an eye surgery camp. Okay. Right? So everybody did something. So, for example, my children at that point in time were 7, 10, and, thir- and, and 12, right? So they helped sort out glasses, uh, you know, bandages, and, and clean the instruments, and helped, you know, guide the patients and things like that. So everybody contributed, right? And so they've been involved and also seeing me do it from a very young age. And I've always spoken to them about what I'm doing, where I'm going, what I saw. And because they've come with me, they can visualize exactly what's going on. So it's not a strange thing to them, right? Okay. So because I got my kids involved very early from a young age in this work, it's ingrained in them. And they have that same spirit. And they know that, that you know what, we as human beings, we have to help. This is the first job is, is to help. And real happiness is, is, is in helping others. And you know this, there's been tons of studies done, um, both in sociology and psychology, saying that, you know what, the path to true happiness is altruism, is helping somebody else, making somebody else feel better. Why do you think that's so easy to forget? Let me back up. If you walk around any elementary school in most places, you're going to see these lovely drawings and artwork on the world, you know, kids and stick figures standing around the planet <laughs> holding hands, right? You're going to see these, these big banners of talking about kindness and helping and all of this. Everyone you know, supposedly gets it. Everyone has heard this message. How does it get so lost? Because that that doesn't seem to be the current or perhaps even ever like default state of the world. And yet I would argue that most people agree that you should be helpful. You should be kind. Why is that lost? I mean, I think human beings by nature are selfish. And it's a survival instinct. We should, we should be somewhat. We should be somewhat selfish. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't survive, right? So that's inherent, I think, in all of us is self-preservation, and that's okay. I mean, I mean, it should be like that. But I think, I mean, you know, I really think that exposure is very important. I think that being able to see how somebody else lives, being with them and talking to them, um, I think helps appreciate where they're coming from. I think the biggest problem in the world is that we refuse to go and see how somebody else lives, put ourselves in their position. And in early childhood, yes, we can teach kids about, children about helping, and, and but until you actually take them to an environment where they can actually see how others in the world live, mm-hmm. right? I don't think that, that they will truly understand. You've spent time around different parts of the world. You've also spent time in some of the more remote indigenous communities in this country. Is there an argument to be made that there's people even right here that are forgotten by most? 100%. I mean, we are essentially a colonizing nation, right? Both mm-hmm. Canada and the US. We came in and, and colonized this land. I mean, the, the indigenous people here are the original people here. Right. And we're colonizers, right? And uh, I do feel, even as, as a physician, uh, I've seen some of these reservations and, and you know, native reservations, and, and it's it's awful. How can, uh, as a physician, you know, I, as a healthcare worker, I say, well, how can a first world country 
that's so developed. There's freedom of democracy, freedom of speech, and we're a G7 country. How can we have Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, living in such horrible scenarios? And I mean, you know, the the um, schools, um, schools. I've residential schools. Residential schools. Thank you. The the residential schools are not so long ago. No, they really aren't. No, right? And how we as as a as a Canadian society can can tolerate that is, is just beyond me. But yeah, I agree. It's basically sometimes worse than third world or developing world situations in these reservations. It's really bad. Do you think that the situation persists in part because it's out of sight and so out of mind? Right? Like you you have to go yeah. so out of your way yeah. to even experience it that it's seems mythical in a way? I think a lot of us are comfortable and don't want to be uncomfortable, don't want to see uncomfortable truths, right? Mm. And don't want to go up and see how it is. And so we kind of put everything in a drawer because that's the easiest thing to do and say, okay, that's it. You know what? I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to live my life and, and, and enjoy my life. You know, many of us don't or refuse to see how the other side lives because they're far away. It's not in our face and we forget. I agree. Uh, if anybody visits uh, one of these reserves, uh, you know, where these indigenous communities in Canada, they will know right away just how I think Canada has been very negligent. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's a political statement. And, and you know, I, I look at it from a, from a humanitarian point of view. But I do think that, that we need to improve their situation, both from a health point of view, economic point of view, social point of view, multiple points of view. There's various sayings along the, the line that, you know, there's no justice until there's justice for all right i think we were insulated in a lot of cases with the exception of maybe going in certain neighborhoods in a city like toronto right especially you know as covid hit a lot of people went out of work there's more increased homelessness and whatnot in this city and many cities in north america for that matter so those are the probably the few times that you know, the average person and would typically maybe encounter something like that but like most people just don't see it and so uh, i wonder if to your point, I think it's just really important that we're, we're exposed to it because we can't just pretend it doesn't exist. I mean, you know, when I, I so I grew up in Edmonton, and mm-hmm. you know this, yeah. there's large Indigenous communities in, in Edmonton, right? right yeah. um, and I went to school with them. I mean, I went to public school in Edmonton, and the area I was, I was at, the area we, we came to first, uh, you know, there was a large Indigenous community. And for sure, I mean, I had classmates and students in, the, in my school that were Indigenous Canadians. And so I got that exposure early on. And so I think living in Edmonton, we're much more exposed uh, to the issues that this community faces mm, versus maybe okay. someone living in Toronto where you're not so much exposed right. because the most of these communities are up north and nobody ever goes there, so to speak. You and I were talking just before this, both grew up in Edmonton. My beard is nowhere near mm-hmm. in your league yet, but uh, working on it. You're originally from Pakistan, and you were saying you're, you're, you know, it seems like our our mothers at some point may have almost just crossed paths, right? My Probably. my mother was born in Lahore, pre-partition India, and then in in the, in the chaos that ensued shortly after, they ended up coming to to India, and then your mother, I guess, was born in Amritsar. You were saying, yeah, and she moved the other way. She went to Pakistan, and Lahore. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, you know, on just either side of these artificial lines that we create, right? Like nature never put these lines there. God didn't put these lines there. We just created these lines. And then we think these thoughts about other people. We, we create these narratives about other people in our heads and we choose to like or dislike them, even if we never actually encounter them in day-to-day life. And I feel like that is a, 
sort of the condition of the world politically, but it's also the condition of the world just very much in our proximity. There's, what is it about the way that you operate that makes you kind of look up and out at the world and be as sort of mindful and conscientious about it, just constantly empathetic towards it? Because you really don't have to be. In, okay, so in the end, the simple answer is that I really feel blessed for what I have. Okay, I've got intellect, I've got skills, I've got knowledge, I, you know, I enjoy people. I enjoy making people happy. And, you know, I, I, I really think that we're all equal. And it's been my desire to explore what makes people tick. I've been an avid people watcher. I, I watch why people smile, why people cry. I've done that since I was very young. From a very young age, I would spend hours looking at people's facial expressions, how they interact, uh, you know, and, 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 and what makes them tick, why is someone crying, why is not, what makes them happy. And I think that led me to explore and it, it created the bug of travel because I, I, I you know, mm. I, I went to Pakistan, to Beirut, to Edmonton and everywhere in between. You know, even when I was in Lebanon, we went to Syria, we, we, we would travel to the Middle East. And so I, I was always traveling from a very, very young age and always meeting new people. And then I think what happened is as, as I got older, I got very busy with school. Uh, university and medical school are very busy. And so I didn't have any time. And then there's always something missing though. I, I, think, I think when I look back, even when I was a medical student and when I was a resident doing eye surgery, there's always something missing, something unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. And so I took my first mission, which was actually to Vietnam. That was my first mission ever was to Vietnam. And I loved it. Uh, it was a new place. It was an adventure. I met tons of, uh, this is in the early days when, when people had not gone to Vietnam. Sure, this is okay. like in 2006. Okay. 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 Now Vietnam is, you know, it, it's, 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 it's one of the places yeah. to go now. Yeah. It's yeah. one of the places to go now, but this is like way back. And it was amazing. It was like a whole new world opened up to me. There was all these doctors and, and residents who were, who were thirsty for knowledge, who really appreciated me coming and thanked me and asked me questions and, and I taught them surgery. And that was a huge high because, you know, I made new friends. Uh, I learned new ways of thinking. I learned new cultures. Um, because of that first experience I had, which was to Vietnam of, of all places, that kind of, I think, really encouraged me to, you know, devote myself to traveling more and, yeah. You strike me as someone who's a pretty expressive person, right? Like even you're, you've got to be the most stylish ophthalmologist oh. around, period. You seem to be one to express yourself. So I, I find it interesting that there's a combination of both watching and listening and absorbing, but you're not kind of losing yourself in that too, right? Like you're expressing yourself through your work, through your service, through your fashion. What is the thing that you want people to feel when you walk into a room Wh whatever the context might be when they see you for the first time when they meet you what is it that you want them to feel i want them to feel um joyful and happy number one and reassured and safe you're an ophthalmologist right you've there's the entire human body and you pick the eyes. And, uh, you know, there's that old saying that the eyes are the gateway to the soul. If your eyes could talk about all that they've seen, what would they say? My eyes would say that, that we are all the same. Uh, as human beings, we have 
similar hopes and desires and dreams. And what makes us happy is very similar. What makes us sad is very similar. So I've seen, I've treated thousands of patients all over the world, both locally here, but even in Toronto, you in, in you see people from everywhere. It's, it's a very right. diverse community. But internationally, I, I've treated so many people. And I think what my eyes have seen is really that we, we are all the same. There's no difference between me and somebody else. I was lucky to be born where I am. I was lucky that my father and mother decided to come to Canada. I was lucky for the experiences that I had, or blessed, I should say. Others have had different experiences and different opportunities in life, but we're all the same. Right. When you've seen people in different parts of the world in different circumstances, going through some sort of suffering, some sort of hardship, when you look across the entire amalgam of your experiences, what do you what stands out to you as being most surprising about people? Like, what have you noticed that's the same or, or unexpected about them? A couple of things. So first is resilience. Okay, I'm amazed. So I've been to some pretty underdeveloped countries. I mean, of course, Gaza was was, was the most recent. It's a completely different ball game, mm-hmm. and we can come back to that later, of course. But I've been to some very underdeveloped countries in Africa and in, in Central Africa, in, in Asia even, right? Just the resilience. And I've seen that one thing that's really struck me time and time again is how strong these people are. Okay, they, how much suffering they put up with that we living here in a country like Canada would never put up with. Mm-hmm. And how happy they are with so little, right? And what brings them happiness is not the material things that we're so blessed with here in you know more developed countries like Canada and, and in the West. You know they what makes them more happy is the social interaction. And I was surprised. I was going, you know, here you are. You're living in one of the poorest countries in the world. Your house is small. You don't have the clothes and other material possessions that others do. You're so happy, and that's what always struck me. And that has dawned on me that you know what, what is happiness. What right. makes you happy, right? I've gone there as a physician. And the amount of appreciation I've seen from them, and that's the other thing, is that they're very, I mean, my patients everywhere without fail that I've gone outside. I mean, obviously here as well. But the degree to which that they're happy and thankful and appreciative of me being there is tremendous. And sometimes it, it embarrasses me, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's my privilege and honor to treat you. Uh, you know, you have allowed me to treat you. I mean, you've given me something that you have no idea. Yes, I may have fixed your eyes or I may have made you see better or taken, you know, done this or that, but you have given me the joy. And it's, it's been my honor to come here and see you and meet you and become friends with you. That's how I feel. I think uh, to play uh, devil's advocate here, yeah. like stepping outside of yourself, I'm not sure that you or maybe you do realize just how rare that is. When someone is willing to come and actually help you and is willing to be there for you when perhaps other people aren't, and that they feel a sense of gratitude for even having that opportunity, it seems almost counterintuitive to a lot of people. I think it's it's probably a combination of lived experience, right? Because a lot of people just, they may even reach out and they don't get the help that they need. So when someone finally does come to help, it almost... I can only imagine that for some people it almost feels like surreal that this is actually the case. When I heard the conversation that you had with Matt Galloway on the CBC 
and shout out to Matt. I, I thought that that was a, a lovely conversation. You had only been back from Gaza a few days. I think you came back on the 9th. Two days, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, less than two days. Yeah. So we're 20 days, just about three weeks since then. That you were, you know, just a, a few days, it was still very, very fresh. And I imagine it's still fresh. But like over the last few weeks, how have you changed? How's your perspective and your reflection on what you experienced there changed, if at all? I think, uh, you know, many people that I've, I've spoken to all over the world, actually, not just here and of all backgrounds, a lot of people have changed in the last 114 days. I think at some point in time, when this is all over, it will be time for all of us to reflect. And we'll see that a lot of people profoundly changed from all backgrounds, all, all, all over the world. And we're talking about millions of people. On a personal note, yes, I, I think my change started three months ago um, when, when, when the war started and the war in Gaza started. And I think uh, the, the change that was happening, my trip to Gaza was, was sort of a natural progression and almost like a, a cement, cementing of, of, of the change that I was going through. Because when I landed uh, and the time I spent in Gaza and what I saw and the people that I, it, it, to me, it's all about people, right? It's all those people first. On all my trips, I've, I've been to some very beautiful places. Every place I've been to has been beautiful, right? Every place, including, you know, like the worst places where mm -hmm. there's disease and whatnot. Still, there's, there's beauty in it. But my favorite part has been the people I've met. You know, I, I love the people I've met, patients and the doctors and, and, the, and the driver who picks me up from the airport and things like that. So, so it's all been about people. So even with Gaza, the people I broke bread with, even the patients that I saw, horrible, horrible trauma with horrible suffering. But all that, you know, really changed me, changed my perspectives on humanity, on life, and on how I want to go forward. When I came back, I, go, I went right to work. You know, I mean, I've got a very busy practice here and I, and I have a commitment to my patients here as well. Of course. Uh, and a strong man, I love my patients and I, I take my commitment to them very, very strongly. So of course I've got a commitment to them and, and to make sure that they're healed and they feel better. And so that's a responsibility. So I went right to work, which is what I do anyways. Whenever I take my trips, uh, I'm usually back to work the next day. So it's something I do all the time. People wonder how I do it, I just do it. And it's second age, I don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. And I can function at a, at a level that, like at a high level. Then a few days after, Matt's producer called me and she, and she said, you know, Matt wants to interview you for, for CBC Radio. And then after that, you know, it's just been busy. I really think that one of the reasons why I went there and, and one of the promises that I made to people that were there in Gaza is that I would be a voice for them, right? Because they, I hope we come back to this later on, but they really feel abandoned by humanity. They feel that no one is coming to help them. The bombing goes on to this day. Their agencies uh, are getting their funding cut, right? I mean, everybody is basically just coming down on them. Mm -hmm. That's how they feel. And so it was my, you know, they basically, when I was there, they, they said, please promise us that you'll continue to be a voice for us. And so I have tried as much as I can to speak out, let people know the humanitarian catastrophe that this all is, the suffering that, that's happening, it's real. And so 
the reason I bring this up is I really haven't had a quiet moment to sit down and reflect on everything that I went through while I was there. It hasn't happened yet, but it will come, but it hasn't happened yet. Right. You were in Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza. How did you even end up realizing that this was a possibility, that you as a physician from here could go there and in some way, shape, or form help there and see what the ground truth realities would be? Well, I mean, you know, as you know, this is the first live-streamed, you know, mass slaughter of, of civilians that by, by military force that we've seen, as far as I can remember. Um, I've lived through, um, you know, in, in, as a Canadian, I, I've lived through seeing other wars, whether it's the Gulf War, the Bosnian War, mm-hmm. even the Ukraine War, more, more things came up. But, but this has been live-streamed because no independent journalists have been allowed or no foreign media has been allowed into Gaza. It's been all independent journalists who've been filming all this. And so we've all seen it for the last three months. And it's weighed on us. So it's weighed on me as well. And I felt quite helpless in not being able to stop or do anything for these people who are suffering tremendously and being bombed and bombed and bombed. So basically, I was operating at my hospital. And um, I was at the scrub sink doing what I do between cases is looking at images of of children dying, uh, of women and men coming into the hospitals that we've all seen on, on social media. And one of my surgery colleagues approached me. And he said, you know, he greeted me. He goes, Yasser, how are you doing? I said, well, you know what? I'm just kind of down because I'm looking at this and, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's weighing on me a lot. I feel helpless. He goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm um, this is in, in December, in kind of mid-December. He goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Gaza. And I said, what? I said, what do you mean? Uh, he goes, yeah, I'm going to Gaza next week. Um, it's um, basically, um, uh, they've been trying for six weeks. Um, to get the approval to go and they've been waiting for it and they finally got the approval because to enter Gaza you just can't enter. Of course, you need yeah. approval by the Israeli authorities, by the Egyptian authorities, by the Ministry of Health in Gaza and also by the World Health Organization or WHO. And then your name is put on a list. That list is actually actually updated on a daily basis and everybody has it on. So if you go to the border, uh, all the authorities, they have it on their phones and if your name is not on the list, you're not getting in. Okay. Right? So you have to be approved. And so they started allowing doctors and medics and things like that to go in, medical people to go in, okay? And uh, he said that, you know, you may be able to get in. Like, there may be some openings. We can submit your name. It's not guaranteed. Most likely it will not happen. But we can submit your name if you want. Um, Do you want to come? And uh, so without thinking, uh, without even thinking, uh, I said yes. Okay, I said, you know what, I'll say yes, and then I'll go home and speak to my family and think about it, but I don't want to miss this opportunity. I'll say yes. So I said yes to him right away. He goes, fine, I need your passport, I need your medical degree, and I need your blood type, okay? And just in case, mm-hmm. sure. I need blood. Of course, yeah. Um, and he goes, can you give it to me? So I, I had it on, on my on my phone. I texted it to him right away, um, and he sent it off to wh- whoever was organizing this with the WHO. And he goes, let's see what happens, right? He goes, most likely not, but let's see. And so two days later, um, I got I got approved. Uh, and miraculously, I got approved by the Ministry of Health and the WHO. And then, you know, the, the other Israeli and Egyptian authorities approved it. It, it, it was all good. And um, and then, so by the time all the paperwork and everything, everything, you know, went on, it was on a Friday, 
that I got all my paperwork. And then I bought my plane ticket the same day and I, and I left the next day. So I packed overnight. That's how quickly it happened. Okay, so I, I, need, to, I need to take a moment here. Your wife has got to be the like, most incredibly strong individual that you say, I'm going to Gaza. And how does that play out? Because I guess the reason I'm asking is the cause, the reason for you to go makes a lot of sense but the sacrifice that your let's put you aside the sacrifice your family is making by allowing you to go letting you go you know sending you whatever however you want to put it is tremendous is incomprehensible if i'm honest how did they react to this farah my wife is a very strong woman She's a tough cookie, very independent, very strong. And, you know, all the humanitarian trips and missions that I've done, they would not have happened without her support, 100%. Um, we don't have a relationship where if I don't have her support, I'm not someone that's going to go off and do it. Okay, so we're pretty equal that way. We don't do things individually and say, you know what, too bad, so sad, I'm going, right? It right. doesn't happen like that. So she supported every single mission that I've done. And so her support is fundamental and essential. And so she's really strong. And, you know, I've got, I've got older kids. I've got, I've got dichotomy of children of, of all age groups. And so as they've gotten older, they've also been very active in, in, in all these discussions. So she's used to me doing crazy things and allowing okay. me to do crazy things. Okay. Even when I took up climbing and I, and I went on some climbing expeditions, climbing mountains that are like 20,000 feet in uh, South America, uh, Iceland and things like that. So she, she supported that. You know, I've taken trips to other kind of areas where there, there, there's not active conflict, but it could be. I mean, I've gone to places, countries in Africa, mm-hmm. you know, like Uganda and Cameroon uh, and Ethiopia and, and things like that, you know, where there's been some conflict, but, you know, there's always some risks, right? I've went to northern areas of Pakistan, for example, where, you know, anything you can get kidnapped, whatever. So, right. she, so she's used to that. When I, when I came home and I, and I spoke to my family, I spoke to Farah and the kids, and I said, you know what? this happened what do you think obviously they were shocked because at that point in time nobody was going to Gaza we actually were essentially the first mission from Canada and the US that went into Gaza because nobody was going in mm-hmm. at that point in time this is December right now there's teams going in but you know and, and Khan Yunus was at that point in time now it's worse was actively like this active conflict going on in Khan Yunus particularly at Nasser Hospital and which had just been bombed recently right. and when I was at that time and Europe in Gaza and so there, of course, at first, they said, you know, like, where, what, when, how? Like, what are you doing? And the reaction was very strong. Then my kid, kids looked it up. They, uh, you know, they, they, they looked online, the whole scenario. You know, I, I explained to them, you know, who I'm going with. Yes, there's some risks, but, you know, um, there's always risks, especially in, 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 this, in this conflict. Right. Then that's where faith comes in because she, she's very faithful has a lot of strong faith in that in the sense that you know we're here we're on this earth for 70 to 80 years right and we all have a purpose you know you almost never turn down a noble purpose i mean if you're there to help these people who've been suffering and we and we've looked at them suffer we look at parents lose their children children lose their parents over 50 percent of the people that have suffered are children and if i can help them in any way we thought and this is as a family that nobody's getting in right now. If somehow God has opened up an opportunity for me to go, it's almost an obligation to go because that's my test. 
that, you know, here I have an opportunity to go and help these people, right? We all have to go one day. And that's the thing with, with death is that we all think that this is a temporary existence. 70, 80 years if you're lucky, right? We all have to go one day. And my kids all believe that. Farah, of course, believes it. And then after that, she goes, you know, Yasser, you can go. I support you. And, um, and, and, and we're ready for no matter what happens. So with that support, I said yes. Mm -hmm. and, and I made my arrangements. But having said that, while I was gone, it was really tough for her. Right. I mean, when I was there and I'll, we'll come back to this later on, I didn't feel so bad. OK, uh, because I'm in the midst of everything. Sure. Right. I'm removed. I'm not looking outside. I'm within. The, and you know, yeah. you're OK. Yeah. In that moment. Exactly. I'm within the eye of the storm. I know I'm OK, but they don't. Right. And so it was a very, very tough nine days uh, that I was away for all the kids and, and Farah as well. I, I, I want to get to in, in just a moment here what it is you saw and experienced. But before that, you know, there's there's all these stories of, uh, you know, soldiers coming back from war and not being able to connect with civil society. I've, you know, heard accounts from even uh, cancer patients. Uh, actually, one of my favorite authors, Sebastian Younger, he wrote about, you know, some of these experiences of community, you know, cancer patients who've spent, you know, months or years with other patients, you know, um, going through chemo. They build camaraderie, they build community. And then they come back to their their normal life. Maybe they go into remission. Maybe they beat it, whatever it is. And then they miss that community because no one else will understand what they went through. With what you experienced, you know, leading up till this point and then in, in Gaza, how do you reconnect with the world? I mean, I know you're on a little bit of a, it's only been about 20 days. You've spoken to a lot of media outlets and whatnot. But is there a network of physicians or healthcare professionals like you that that you're in touch with that you can connect with someone else who can understand what you experienced besides my family i'm actually very blessed i've got a very strong group of friends and family they're very supportive and some of them are physicians uh, some are not and so it's a mixed mixed crew and from the beginning they've been very very supportive they were shocked they said yasser what are you doing <laughs> and don't go some said don't go what are you doing but they all know me and they all know that this is what I do. So I, I'm spontaneous. And when there's a need and a cause that I believe in, which is to alleviate suffering, I will go. If I can help anybody, even bring a smile to their face or even fix one person's eye or face or injury, I will go. And they know this and they've been very supportive. And ever since I got back, you know, they have not left me alone. They've called me and, and made sure I'm okay. And, and uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think I'm really blessed in that, in, that, uh, in that way. I heard, you know, I heard and read some of the accounts of, of what you witnessed. You know, you, at one point, I think you said, I didn't realize it was only eight days, but you removed 10 eyes in, in the time that you were there. You've seen suffering that anyone outside of that circumstance would never comprehend. So you, you go through the Rafa crossing, you end up in Khan Yunus, you're at the hospital with all of these other physicians and, and care providers, seeing the circumstances that, you know, I've heard you describe. You first see it firsthand. What did you feel? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I got a bit of a feeling of, of how they, how, what the Palestinians are, are suffering 
what they've suffered for a long time, especially for 75 years, but especially now. When I went to the Rafah border, I waited for three hours at the Rafah border for them to look through our passports. And I, I, and I, and I said to, I, I was with 20 other NGOs, different NGOs, and, and they're going to different places. I said, you know what? We're approved by everybody. They already have our name on a list. Why are they taking three and a half hours to go through our passports, right? And what, because what happened at that point, and we're all a bit nervous and anxious because uh, night, night was coming, the mm-hmm. sun was going down. And the UN has a policy that, that nobody travels after 5 p.m. when the sun comes down. Why? Because there's Israeli drones, especially things like the quadcopter, which is the weaponized drone that has sniper fire on it. And there's other drones out there that target cars driving at night. And they have been, whether it's an ambulance, whether it's, uh, it's any car, it's targeted. And so people don't travel, simple as that. So it was getting night. And by the time we got out, unfortunately, it was 6.30 p.m. The sun had gone down. Now, the other NGO, uh, NGOs, the other 20 people that were with me were all going to the Rafah border, which is, at that point in time, was a deconflicted zone. There was no conflict going on there. That's where they were going. I was going right into Khan Yunus okay. and where there's active conflict going on. And um, I was by myself. So the two guys came to pick me up uh, to take me to the hostel from the NGO I went with. And they spoke good enough English for me to communicate with them. I said, you know, uh, after I said my greetings, I said, you know what, are you sure it's safe? You know, the other uh, NGOs offered me to just go with them and just stay overnight and and then leave in the daytime. So I asked these guys, I said, do you think it's safe? And they said, yeah, you know what, just trust God. It's okay, you'll be okay, everything's fine. I said, okay. So because I'm, because I take risks um, and sometimes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not risk averse, I take risks. Um, I said, Clearly. okay, yeah. uh, I said, okay, that's fine. I said, that's fine. And they loaded my luggage. It was an unmarked SUV. And so it's a 15 minute, 15 to 20 minute drive from the Rafa border into Khan Yunus and the European Casa Hospital, which is where I was going to be. And the road was quiet. Uh, there was no lights because, you know, all the electricity has been shut off by the uh, Israeli forces. And there's no other car on the road. It was just me and these two guys mm-hmm. and from the NGO. And they were quiet. Nobody spoke. And so that was, I must admit, for the first time out of all the travels that I've done, I've come close to being kidnapped in one of the countries. I've come close to a lot of things. But for the first time, I, I had like real fear, which kind of gave me an idea of how they live because I, you know, I made my peace. I made my peace with God. I begged for forgiveness. I prayed for my family. So I said, you know what, I'm ready. And I was actually ready to die at that point in time. So it was, it was one of the most tense moments of my life as I was, probably the most tense as I was driving and I had made peace. So it's funny what you think of, right? When you, when you know that you may die or it's gonna happen, what's the first thing you think of, right? And I thought about my family, so I prayed for them. I thought about my God, I thought about God, so I prayed to him and uh, ask for forgiveness for everything bad that I've done in my entire life. I can't imagine yeah. that's a very long list. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I, it is a long list, but it's, it's between me and, and, and God. Right. And, and, and so I ask for forgiveness and forgive me for everything I've done, every wrong that I've done. And we all do wrong. Yeah, I've made my mistakes in my life and um, all I can ask is for forgiveness. And then, you know, I kept on saying this, over and over again because you know for the last thing I do is I want God and my family to be in my thoughts right 
then I saw the emergency sign. So we had reached the hospital okay. and I had a sigh of relief and I saw the emergency sign. And this is what, but you know what, Anuj, this is what the people of Gaza have been going through for the last 100 days. Actually, for the last 25, 75 years, one would argue, going about is that you never life. know if, yeah. if you're gonna wake up at night, you know, the next day, especially these days for the last 100 days, you know, people are sheltering in these buildings and they're bombed, right? And this is what they go through. And as soon as I got out, what did I hear? I was overtaken by this loud noise of 24-hour humming of these drones. The Israeli forces have drones everywhere, right? And, and I looked around, there's like the noise of drones. It was, it was quite, uh, I'd never heard that before. It was constant, right? Humming of, of drones. And then, I heard, and, then, and then I heard the bombs going. And just as I entered, I heard the bombs going because the Israeli forces were about a kilometer away from the hospital at the time when I was there. Mm -hmm. Now they're, I think, right at the hospital. And uh, yeah, so that was my first welcome into Gaza. So you're there now. Maybe, maybe the, in, in some strange way, maybe the happiest you've ever been to see an emergency sign in, in your life. True. What next? Like you show up and everything's happening and you just jump into helping? Like how, how do you even land in that circumstance and find your way through what, you, what you're witnessing now? It's funny what my, you know, you, you, you think of what your first impressions are of a place and, and first impressions stay with you. Um, for a long time. So, I'll, you know, the, the, it was about 7 o'clock, 7 p.m., 7.30 by the time I arrived. And they took me up to meet the medical d director or actually the executive director uh, of the hospital, a guy named um, Dr. Uh, Akkad, and uh, who happens to be an ophthalmologist by training, even though he's okay. not practicing right now. He's actually um, doing administrative, right? So I went up to his office and there's a little table and it, then it's his desk. and. I mean, you know, it's mass chaos everywhere. There's people everywhere. There's refugees or people, sh you know, who've lost homes, uh, displaced people, just sheltering everywhere. And, and I'll describe to you later on um, of what I saw. But I went to his office. Very nice and kind man, you know, greeted me, thanked me for coming. They're all very appreciative, even though, you know, we actually are a bit of a burden, right? Because they have to house us. They have to feed us and take care of us, right? But they're appreciative us coming because not only do we provide a skill set, we help, uh, we provide knowledge and skills and also give them a break because their doctors have been working 24-7. But there's also that interaction and that support and, right. and, and that connection with the outside world and they appreciate that. That they matter. Yeah, that right. they matter because everybody else seems to have forgotten about them, right? So he was talking to me. So because the Palestinians have been, uh, in, especially in Gaza, have been under blockade for a long time, they just can't go in and... Um, and learn anywhere, right? So despite being in, in a blockade, especially since 2007, 16 years, they're still able to build modern, excellent universities, medical schools, and so they did their own in-house in training. But before all of this, a lot of them went out. So Dr. Akkad uh, did his uh, medical school and his residency in eye surgery in, uh, in Pakistan, okay. okay? And he was uh, very proudly saying that Pakistan had one spot for, for a dentist from Palestine. It's very competitive, and his brother got it. And he goes, that his brother got it because he was just so smart and built his practice up, became, came back to Gaza, worked as a dentist, built his practice up, and, uh, you know, very, very smart. And he's saying it, and he goes, but he said, Alhamdulillah, which means praise be to God. He goes, he goes but thanks to God, he was martyred th three days ago 
by the Israeli forces in a missile attack while he was sleeping in, in his house. And then he just moved, and then he and he and then he said it such in nonchalantly such a non, almost like yeah just, nonchalantly in, in, in such a nonchalant manner, and then moved on to kind of talking about the hospital and whatnot. And it struck me because I said, you know, here's a man who just three days ago lost his brother, who was so proud of, who he clearly loved, uh, to a missile attack uh, by the Israeli forces. And, and he, first of all, he thanked God. Okay, so he thanked God, and that's what they all did. Whenever they talk about their loved ones dying, whether it's a cousin or a friend, they always thank God first. I mean, they're, pe they're, they're people of faith, right? They've seen a lot of suffering and killing and 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 um, and you know and and uh, uh, torture in their lives. And he went on because you know the man has to deal with the, with his hospital that that was a 250 bed hospital, but now is a, is a is a refugee camp. There's 20,000 people living inside and outside, not in tents. In makeshift shelters with like curtains or blankets that are covering them. The ones outside are the unlucky ones because it goes down to one or two degrees. And he has to handle all that, right? Because I mean there's issues because they're all in hospital grounds. Because they mm -hmm. they feel, they perceive that the hospital is relatively the safest place to be. Right. They've either had their homes destroyed, have had loved ones die, or they've had to evacuate. And so that amazed me right away. Uh, I said, oh my God. And then I met the head of the Department of Ophthalmology, wonderful man. And, you know, I asked him, I don't know why, I asked him, I said, you know, have you lost anybody in the war close, right? And he goes, well, my immediate family is okay, but I've lost, he, he listed them, I've lost like three cousins and two aunts and, and an uncle. And he goes, but, you know, but, that, but that's, you know, thanks to God, we're still here and, 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 and we're moving on. So. They're able to find such strength in this tremendous loss. That blew me away, really. I'd never seen that before in someone. So you're seeing, I'm sort of starting to get a, a little bit of a picture of you arriving here and then seeing these physicians, these care providers, with everything that they've lost, just they're kind of keeping it together and they're moving on. Um, how do you end up seeing patients and then like operating like how how does is it just the situation is at hand and you just jump in like what did you see that just i guess got you like right into action to do what you went there to do so just to backtrack i mean this is really uh for me as a as a physician and as a humanitarian this has been a war on the healthcare system on hospitals, uh, on children, a war on children, uh, a war on women, uh, a war on innocent people, uh, but but even you know a war in the healthcare system. The entire healthcare infrastructure has been targeted by the Israeli forces um, in a in a systematic, intentional way. And the strange thing is that that um, the Israeli government doesn't hide it. There's tons of statements about this open statements about what they're intending to do. So it's not like, it's not like they, even, they even hide it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go and, and, and uh, I mean, the, the International uh, Court of Justice mentioned many of these statements if you, if you follow their, their, their uh, uh, you know, their initial kind of statement that they made just, just this week or last week. But it's not hard to find these statements made by their own politicians about what they want to do, what they are doing. So it's been an open, intentional, uh, attack on uh, on on and you know um, on basically 
uh, doctors. So 300, uh, over 300 physicians and nurses and healthcare workers have been killed. Ambulance workers have been targeted and killed. Hundreds have been arrested, including many doctors have been arrested and we still don't know where they are. And, you know, the sewage system has been destroyed. Um, the water pipes has been destroyed. And what does that, that all that do? That creates disease, right? So, so it's like this medieval way of, 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 uh, of dealing with, with, the, with the population you want to deal with, uh, that if the, if the bombs don't kill you, right, it's a disease that's going to kill you, right? I mean, you have thousands and thousands of bodies under the rubble, and it's raining right now. So, you know, you have rain falling on these decomposing bodies. The rainwater gets mixed with the bacteria from these bodies that gets mixed with the sewage, that gets mixed with drinking water. And so the incidence of gastrointestinal diseases, of cholera, dysentery, is huge. So the bombs don't get you, disease will definitely get you, and you will die in, in, in the thousands. There's only six ambulances left in the whole Gaza Strip because ambulances have been targeted specifically with missile attacks, with drones, and, and, and other things. So overall, if you look at it, it is an attack on the healthcare system so that you know, I guess one would argue, and this is, again, it's bizarre, the, the Israeli politicians have said this and have admitted this, that, you know what, when this is all over, there'll be nothing to return to. It's uninhabitable. There'll be no healthcare system because when it's over, the people who are sick, either with amputations or people who are blind or with disease, with, with gastrointestinal illnesses, with infectious disease, they will have no place to get healed. So they'll have to go outside and goodbye, right? You know what I mean? So everything's been flattened. I mean, there's been hospitals that, you know, that have been forced to evacuate and then have been detonated. There's been hospitals that have reopened, but then have been shot again so that people evacuate, so that people will leave, right, with sniper fire. So, you know, and, and politics aside, I haven't in my memory, and I'm not a historian, really seen such an unprecedented attack on the healthcare system. So as a result, at the time when I was there, there's two major full-service hospitals left in the whole Gaza Strip for two million people. There's a European Gaza Hospital and there's a Nasser Hospital. Now, um, as you may know, the Nasser Hospital was, was surrounded by Israeli forces and they're still getting bombed as of today. There's been leaflets flying and there's been a forced evacuation. You may have see, seen scenes of people leaving with shopping bags, evacuating Khan Yunus, especially around Nasser Hospital. Nasser Hospital was very similar to European Gaza Hospital, where, where there's thousands of people seeking refuge both inside and outside, including, um, you may have heard, the Canadian-Palestinian journalist Mansour, mm -hmm. who now has been taken by the Israeli forces, and people are trying to get uh, the Canadian government to do something, and I don't think anything has happened thus far. Which goes to show you how safe are we as Canadians when we travel anywhere in the world, right, if, if our own government can't act on our behalf. But that's another question for, for another, another time. Mm. But having said that, so everything has come to the European Gaza Hospital. And so I got almost right into it. I went to my room. Uh, they had me staying uh, in the hospital. And it was very nice. I mean, they cleared up some doctor's offices and put beds there. Now, in this whole refugee camp that has become the hospital, there's one bathroom for 200 people. And so, of course, riots break out. Many of these people are sleeping on the floor. If you're lucky, you get a mat. If you're not so lucky, you get a carpet. 
If you're less lucky, you got a sheet of sheet. If you're really unlucky, you're on the floor, right? Inside and outside. And don't forget, Palestinians in general in the whole area are known as very particular about hygiene, purification, cleanliness, modesty, all that kind of stuff. So imagine all these people that are there, and that's what got to me. It's just a humanity, because I saw these people, they weren't homeless. They all had homes. 85% of people in the Gaza Strip have either had their home destroyed. Even today, the Israeli forces, and they film everything, so you can get everything on TikTok. Right. Um, you know, they're intensely just uh, placing bombs in empty, evacuated Palestinian homes and destroying whole residential blocks. Just destroying them. There's nobody there, you know, but just destroying them. Why? So the, the 85% of them have lost their homes. Many of them have seen their homes being destroyed on TikTok because they're aware, right? So can you imagine, because they've been able to spot the area and, and, and identify it. Some have left and they say, you know, our home is probably destroyed. We don't know, but it's most likely destroyed, but they haven't been able to go back, right? And these are people that lived full lives, despite the blockade, lived full lives and, and active lives and really put everything into their homes, like everything, because they couldn't go anywhere. You know, you can't travel and go on a vacation uh, from the Gaza Strip. Yeah, their home is their world. Their home, and they put everything into their home. And imagine this home is gone and you're living outside in not even a tent, but like a couple of sheets together and there's families of six and you got to share a bathroom with 200 people. Riots break out, of course. Do you blame them over the bathroom use? In all finish of the hospital, the hospital does have a cleaning staff and they do clean the bathrooms, but obviously the bathroom gets dirty, of course, right? Yeah. But they do clean the bathrooms, but then it gets dirty, right? So why I say this is that they're so kind enough to give me my own room and I had my own bathroom, right? So I didn't have a share. So it was that honor that they, that generosity, they're, they're very generous people that they gave me. And I actually felt, oh, you know what? Like, why do I get to have my own bathroom? Right. So then I, I after I settled in, I, I went uh, back to emerge with one of the other other doctors and just saw the patients there. And then I went back and, and slept. And the next day was full time. Um, you saw children with all kinds of shrapnel wounds. You saw amputations. You yourself removed eyes. And again, I, just so that it's 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 not uh, unclear at all here. These are all everyday average people. These are civilians uh, who uh, are, were one moment just going about their day and the next moment, you know, the world is falling apart in the worst way. I imagine that you're already quite, to some degree, you, you're somewhat sensitized or desensitized perhaps um, to the sort of trauma and chaos and of these, these, this level of injury but you know, I've I've heard you say that you've never seen anything like this. When when you do reflect on your time there, what are the scenes that come back to your mind? There's so many Anuj. In my eight days alone, I saw so so much. And this is something that that they've been seeing on an hourly basis for a hundred days. So, what powerful beautiful, resilient, strong people. I, you know, healthcare workers, um, I digress, but many of the healthcare workers have been working for three months now, more than three months without pay. And many, not, not many, all of them, 100%, 100%, uh, without exception, have lost someone significant or something, and, and usually both, like their lives, their livelihood, uh, their entire civilization. 
But um, having said that, yeah, I mean, you know, they would say that, and and that's the other thing was was bombs. I mean, I was I was in a new kind of hospital kind of complex that was built during COVID to isolate COVID patients, right? So and it was it was relatively close to the bombing. So every time a bomb would drop, the whole place would shake, and you could feel it. Eventually, believe it or not, you got used to it. Honestly, I got used to it, but. The bombs are going every two, every two, three hours, usually in the morning, uh, early morning hours before sunrise. I don't know why the Israeli forces picked that time to bomb, but usually it was before sunrise in the morning, or what they call fudger time. And but basically, um, you know, uh, every time the bombs would come, they would say, you know what, give it about 15 minutes, the mass casualties will start coming in now. And indeed, they did come. And when they when they came in, Anuja was just massive, and I'd never seen this before. It was just massive chaos. There was like uh, women and, and children and and boys and uncles and and grandfathers all over with with major orthopedic injuries, uh, head trauma, lacerations, uh, you know, uh, soft tissue injuries. Many of them were like all in like rubble, you know, and and and, and so they would come in. Obviously, there's not enough beds, so they'd be on the floor, just kind of coalesced on the floor and then the eMERGE docs would be doing everything they could to kind of get them out, suturing them on the floor. So it was like mass chaos. Um, you know, you had this classic, what I call the, the Palestinian uh, or the shrapnel face of Gaza, where you get these multiple red dots all, all over the, or red spots all over the face. Each spot usually has a piece of metal, concrete, stone in, you know, in, in, in each spot. And what would also happen is that when you're in an explosive situation, you don't know what's happening. So you don't close your eyes. Your eyes remain open. And, you know, God's given us what's called fight and flight response where your eyes open up. It's done so, so you can see what's going on. And so their eyes would open up. And, of course, a shrapnel would go in and, and hit their eyes. So I would argue 90% of them had eye injuries, right, and had facial lacerations and trauma. And so often these eye injuries go undiagnosed because... People are worried about uh, abdominal injuries, about, about orthopedic injuries, about head trauma. You don't look at the eyes, right? Whereas they all have eye injuries. So, I mean, you had the, the shrapnel, you know, ripping eyes apart. I mean, that's when I told you I took about 10 eyeballs out that were just ripped apart. And the age ranges were like age 2, age 6, 10, 11. I think it was 13, 14, 17. And did, right? you, did you at the time have access to like at least basic supplies was there anesthetic available like what was well the european Gaza had enough for general anesthesia from what i understand a lot because a lot of these patients had to be able to sleep so when i take somebody's eye out we we would put them sleep when they did amputations they had enough for general anesthetic but of course local anesthetic was in short supply sometimes an emerge to save on local anesthetic for the bigger surgeries it's all about uh, efficiencies, right? You know, yeah. uh, they would do it without anesthesia in eMERGE to, to suture an arm laceration, right? Because they want to uh, economize the use of the an- anesthetic. Antibiotics are a huge shortage. That's why I'll come back to this infections rampant. So, for example, if you get a big fracture, there'd be people, because a hospital only has 250 beds, there's a thousand people without beds on the floor. They have these orthopedic devices sticking from their legs they'd get infected because the conditions are not so sterile. And so if you survived amputation the first time, you'd get it a second time because things would get infected. 
the antibiotics are not sufficient or not there. And in order to save somebody's life, you'd have to cut the leg off, right? So a lot of the amputations were happening after the initial injury because the limb, whether it's an arm or a leg, gets uh, infected, right? Eyeballs as well. So I mean, we, we had enough to put them to sleep, but we didn't have the proper equipment to do a proper job like I would hair. We didn't have any implants. Sutures were of low supply. Antibiotics, of course, as I mentioned, were also of low supply. Painkillers. They didn't have enough painkillers. And so what they did was they would save the painkillers for the really, really big procedures. Everybody else would have to suffer. And I mean, you know, I, I would walk the wards uh, with people on the floor. Some had a bed and I would walk the floor and, and they'd have all kinds of injuries. And, you know, I mean, they'd be in pain, but I mean, gosh, they're not on pain control. I mean, uh, if it was here, I, I'd expect them to be screaming their, their lungs out in pain. But they, you know, they took it. And mm-hmm. I was surprised, like they took the pain. They considered it, I, I was speaking to somebody, one of the doctors, I mean, the literacy rate in Gaza is 95%, right? So they're all educated. So many of them speak English. But, you know, one of the doctors told me, you know what, the Palestinians consider pain as a test of faith, right? And they, and, and they consider that, you know, if, if, they, if they can take the pain, then, uh, then God will bless them because it's it basically a test of their faith, right? I, I find that... So they took the pain. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't help but just say... I find that incredibly sad because that feels like a collective coping mechanism that is just birthed out of circumstance, right? To on an entire population, it's not something that uh, it's natural to scream in pain, right? And and albeit you know individuals may have different pain thresholds and whatnot, but uh, that, that it becomes a a way to sort of explain it to oneself in that in that situation, and I. Yeah, I, this is the thing. I mean, we, as you'd rightly said, this is being broadcast in 4K. Everybody has got constant live streams of some or other incomprehensible tragedy at all times. And yet, the, it's so, it's, it's so hard for, so I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard time keeping it together, if I'm honest. I want to come back just for a moment. Like, I'm going to go way back. You had this conversation with your with your friend, um, and he said he's going to Gaza. You had told him that you are really deeply affected by what you're seeing. Right around the same time, I had a conversation much like that with a friend of mine. You know, he and I agreed we we were both in a pretty dark place for it, not knowing what to do about it. And I think many many people feel that not knowing what to do. You. You voiced it. This opportunity kind of presented itself. You seized this opportunity where probably 99.99% of other people wouldn't. And now here you are in the middle of all this, seeing what's happening. At any point while you were there, did you, did you have an opportunity to look up and say, what am I doing here? Like, like what, what am I really doing here? And... Did you almost have to pinch yourself to even just check if this was real? I mean, yes and no. When I was there, I looked back at it. I, I became one of them, like one of the doctors. Um, they, they welcomed me so much. They were so warm and friendly that I clicked with them right away. 
And, and I don't mean to say that by me being, being able to identify their pain means that I, I don't have the same pain as them. Of course not. What I mean right. to say is, is that, you know, I, 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 I became one of them. I identified with them. We, we're in the suffering together at that moment in time, right? So when patients would come in, you know, we'd go and, and we'd look for facial lacerations, which is, which is what I do, facial trauma. We'd go look for eye trauma. And, uh, you know, even, even, even while they're working on, I, I saw this one 10-year-old, maybe 8 to 10-year-old girl, right? Her foot fresh bombing. Can you imagine? I never imagined I would ever tell somebody it was a fresh bombing. I mean, it's bizarre what kind of world we live in where I, uh, you know, I've used the term naturally several times that there was a fresh bombing. But there's a fresh bombing. This t uh, eight to 10 year old girl came in and, uh, you know, she's screaming in agony because it just happened. And she's crying like any eight year old girl would cry or kid would cry. And, you know, basically the skin, I guess they pulled her from the rubble, right? And the skin from her, her leg and her foot is ripped off. And you can, no fracture, I believe, but you can see bone, right? And so they're cleaning it. So they're dosing it with alcohol to disinfect. And of course, what she, that, she's screaming because alcohol is painful. And she's screaming and the parents are holding her down. And we go there and, and, and you know, because she's a child, we so, said, you know, let, let's just look at her eye and make sure it's okay. The eye was okay. There was some shrapnel in the eye, but we didn't think it was deep. But we said, you know what, let them deal with the injury first, and then we'll see her later on. So I would do all these rounds, but I was, I was one of them. And we just kept on working from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. We would work, and then I would go in and have dinner with them. And they'd cook for me whatever food they had they would cook for me. The doctors would, right? Because they've all lost their homes. They're all living in these rooms in the hospital, and sometimes with their families. Uh, and sometimes not. So I mentioned that, you know, when I was here, I suffered tremendously. We all did with their suffering, with the pain and feeling helpless, right? And, and I told my family this. When I was there, I actually felt better. Even though I was seeing the trauma live, I was seeing the suffering live, I was experiencing their struggle and their listening to them so calmly say that how their lives have been destroyed, their house is gone, friends gone, 85% of the entire Gaza Strip has been flattened, right? But I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I basically, I, you know, I would, I would still hear them say all, the, all these things, but then go on looking after patients, go on talking and, and about this, that, the other, and I, I don't know how they're able to carry a normal conversation. I became part of that. So therefore, I felt better because I was actually there, right? And that's why I told my family, I said, you know, I actually don't feel bad. Even though I'm hearing everything live, I'm actually there with them. So I think, in my opinion, after going all over the world, if I can say one thing about the Palestinian people, is that they're the most, I, I can say without a doubt, like without a doubt, they're the most resilient, courageous, and generous people I've ever met. And they have such strong faith that I think that that was infectious okay so because their their resilience and their faith is so strong it infected me with that i really think that because in their presence i was calm and and weirdly i felt reassured there is hopelessness don't don't get me wrong i mean uh, you go to the camps because i was talking to the doctors right you know and, right. and it, it's it's a different subset of people but you go to the camps and people are walking sometimes aimlessly around like they're in constant in, in continuous shock like what the heck has happened, right? Uh, almost like PTSD, or I shouldn't say post-traumatic, current traumatic yeah, disorder. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, they're going through it as we speak, so it's not post-traumatic yet. 
it will be eventually and god knows what's going to happen to their mental health at that point in time we it's strange when you read the news when you see how things are covered when how they're talked about um there's something about a story in particular i think i'm personally biased on this i think that humanity has spread and has advanced and has you know kind of conquered the planet largely and perhaps only because of well largely because of our ability to tell each other stories right and some of those stories are good and they have positive outcomes many of those stories are bad and they have negative outcomes for for someone but when we think about sitting here you know thousands of kilometers away at the distances that we are in you know in a life of what seems like unimaginable comfort compared to that you hear about the numbers you know it was first it was 5000 then 10000 then 20000 people killed but that's not that metric is not even remotely the whole story right because i i don't even know if there's any way of fully accounting reasonably well about the number of injuries right injuries that are life altering plus people losing their homes plus the you know as you mentioned the disease to come you have a generation or generations of people that if everything stopped tomorrow like like a light switch the war stopped tomorrow it would still take generations to come out of this trauma of the people that have been through it and yet while you were there i saw that you know you'd kind of posted about some you know moments of hope and glimmer in the middle of all this like there was the I think it was a gentleman that was kind of giving out candy or something like that at one point like how are you finding beyond people's faith like how are people coping not the healthcare professionals but the people going through this how are they themselves finding ways to cope in this Well I think besides their tremendous faith that everything will be okay um I think they don't have time right now their life existence is hour to hour day to day they don't have time to think about tomorrow. I was there and, and I was speaking to the doctors and uh, I didn't have these kind of conversations with, with with the non-physicians, but I was speaking to doctors and and the residents that were there. And they they are talking about I mean they were they were talking about the future, you know, after the war, they'll do this, they'll need this, they'll need that. They want to get this special training or that training. Can you help us with this? You know, uh, we'll need you to help us with that this training or that training. But then they'd backtrack, right? because it's is like being hopeful once the war is over and being hopeless cuz you don't know what's going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. So the Israeli forces have destroyed 85% of their civilization. Universities gone. I mean these are all war crimes but you know I'll let the um the UN and people that deal with us talk about that but there's universities gone, there's hospitals gone, sewage systems, sanitation, bakeries, chicken farms are attacked or were bombed. and so you can't find eggs in uh in the Gaza strip i think maybe somewhere south but most of you can't find eggs because because they bomb chicken farms drama uh, drama places for uh like opera house type things entertainment uh restaurants schools all the all the schools have been eliminated and you've seen this on tiktok videos and 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 on the news of how the israeli forces and soldiers have punched holes in blackboards and made funny tiktok videos out of that mm-hmm. they see all this So imagine if you're sitting there, you see these soldiers, you know, where you studied, where you went to school, mocking. That must hurt. Now, that didn't come up, but I know they see it because mm-hmm. they they kind of talk about it, but I didn't find them in you know, the average folk to be vindictive, 
to be really angry. I think they were just sad. And I think they were just kind of numb in, in, in what's going on, calm in all of it, because they have, they have no other choice. They feel abandoned by humanity. They do. They feel abandoned by everybody. Uh, they feel abandoned by you know, even, the, even the UN and other international agencies, uh, which is true. I mean, the response by some of these agencies has been poor. Uh, response by many countries has been poor. They are touched by the response of the world, of the average person, of the million, billions, one mm -hmm. would say, that have responded. They know this, and I, and I ask them, and, and they're touched by that. And they really are touched. But on the, on the other hand, it hasn't stopped. Yeah. The yeah. bombing still goes and goes and goes. So to come back to your early on question is that if the war stops now, Basically, the amount of amputations I've seen, you know, in one day I saw 15 amputations, and they, these are young children, okay? And not just a single amputation, multiple limb amputations, right? Arm, leg, two legs, is, is in the tens of thousands, okay? And this is not like Canada where we have wheelchair accessibility, where we have prosthetics, prosthetics we have physiotherapy yeah. and, and whatnot. It's not like that at all. They predict that a child who, um, who um, uh, gets an amputation, okay, uh, will, will need an, an average of nine to 10 operations because uh, you have to revise the stump and you have to do this. And even when you get a prosthetic fit, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, but even, even when you get a prosthetic fit, you'll have to revise and do surgery. So they may need, on average, they need about nine to 10 procedures by the time they're an adult, okay? The amount of kids that have lost limbs and have been permanently injured is, is in the tens of thousands, 60,000, you know, people who've been blinded, right? And not only that, and this is all real, like I saw this with my own eyes, but they've lost their support system. Fathers, mothers, grandfathers, uncles, aunts, they're all gone, they're all killed, right? So who's gonna take care of them? Like who's gonna take care of all these people? And, and indeed, the average age of Gaza is 18. Mm -hmm. Even when I was in the camp, kids everywhere. But th th there are indeed kids. So it's logical if you drop a 2,000 dumb bomb, you know, which is a gift from the U.S. to Israel, you're going to, it's a weapon of mass destruction. You're going to kill a lot. And, you know, people, the plastic surgeon there told me that there's a particular kind of drone that Israel uses. So first of all, Israel is testing apparently a, a, a lot of new weapons because it has a defense industry. Right. Yep. So to have a label battle tested is a big sell for buyers. So they're testing all this stuff in the Gaza Strip. So they have this one drone called the Hellfire drone. Mm. Apparently the Hellfire drone, when it explodes, it has these casings that are in the form of, of discs from what was described to me. And they go everywhere. And these discs basically cause, are, are, known to, are designed to cause maximum damage. And what they do is they basically create amputations in unusual spots. So usually in most explosive situations, if, if an amputation happens, it happens at the joint. So the knee, the elbow, right? So this specialized drone causes these disc-shaped sharpnel to go everywhere. And basically it causes amputations at unusual spots like mid-thigh, mid-arm, which makes it even worse. I mean, I saw a 17-year-old boy that they had, that did an above-groin amputation. I was speaking to orthopedic surgeons and you know, unfortunately they did it, but they don't survive. And indeed that boy died. They tried to save his life by doing the amputation, but he died. 
it's easy for for us to kind of lose sight of the people and that that's actually what I, I don't want to do and that, if anything that's what I really um I, I'm so deeply humbled just meeting you just knowing that there's somebody who just not just gives a damn about humanity but you're really living you did not need to be there you may feel otherwise you may feel compelled otherwise but if I can say so from my humble somewhat pseudo objective perspective you did not need to be there and yet you went and, you know, the fact that there is still that level of humanity, you know, amongst the people that you know, however few or however many they may be, is, is incredible. How do you, having seen what you've seen, I know you may not have had that quiet time to fully process this. How do you, how's your relationship with humanity changed, if at all? What did you feel three <laughs> months ago about the world and what do you feel today? I think as the war went on after October 7th, October 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, November, December, as the killing and the, and the slaughter and the massacres got higher and higher and nobody did anything, the um, Western countries who espoused freedom and justice stayed quiet. Uh, voices were quieted down early on in a very aggressive way and the killing and basically the Israeli forces nobody stopped them nobody's still stopping them mind you the US kept on giving them more bombs kept on you know, passing bills 14 billion uh, dollar uh, package not an aid package a, mm -hmm. a military package with yeah. more bombs Israeli politicians admitted that without replenishing they will run out but yet the U.S. kept on replenishing them during the war. And mainstream media was completely shut. And mainstream media was basically gave a very skewed opinion on what's going on, didn't talk about the war. Uh, mainstream media had was not accurate in its reporting. It, it really, like from every angle, the world abandoned these people. Like nobody came. So that really shattered my faith in humanity. It really did. I was very despondent. A lot of us were, but talking about me personally, I lost a lot of faith. A lot of people that I that I admired, you know, icons and titans and whatever. I have no respect for them because the thing is, uh, if we espouse human rights, it should be human rights for all, right? No matter who is suffering, I mean, and there's a lot of suffering in the world, right? That there yeah. is, but we talk about human rights. We talk about selective human rights, and you know, when it's convenient to you. And, uh, you know, the other thing was, uh, you know, a lot of, the, so many things came up at that time, Anuj, in, in so many different ways. Um, there was, you know, um, one, Palestinian children are not equal to other kinds of children. If you look a certain way, well, you know what, you are not equal to somebody else, mm -hmm. right? Um, so even that became very glaring, right? The hypocrisy of the Western world became very glaring. And, you know, I mean, even, even I mean, the Palestinians feel even the Arab world and the Muslim world, countries, not people, uh, right, you know, yeah. they, they felt that they were abandoned by everybody. They have been abandoned. They are abandoned by everybody, right? So all that, I must admit, shattered my faith in humanity. In that, I said, you know what, this is like, and, and I felt despondent uh, for... Um, 
for the world and, and for my children. I say, you know, what kind of world are we? I mean, we're supposed to be progressing. There's supposed to be more justice, not less not justice, less, yeah. right? But after three months and after actually going there, uh, even though their suffering is tremendous and I still, being here, I still suffer when I, even today, a refugee camp was bombed. And I know what's going to happen and, and I've seen it. Children will come. Just like I saw, I mean, a mother carrying her nine or, 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 or 10 year old child asking people to check his pulse, but he's already dead, cold and dead. But she's screaming to check his pulse, check his pulse, right? I know it's going to be coming right now. I, people will go up and get amputated. And the last day I was leaving, there was a UN worker who worked for the UN. Um, she was a 37-year-old woman, must be. Uh, she was sheltering in, in, in a building, which was bombed, okay? She lost her seven-year-old daughter, her sister, and somebody else. And she had a two-year-old baby boy, I think it was. And in the whole midst of chaos, she had to go up to the OR, and they amputated one leg. So we stayed behind because some of the orthopedic surgeons who came with the NGO knew her through mm -hmm. UN work. And so they felt compelled to stay all, up all night on the, on the night we're leaving to operate on her. But her, her baby boy, who's two years old, in the midst of the panic, got left there for two hours. And he had a head trauma, a subdural hemorrhage. Somebody finally found him and took him. And I think neurosurgeon that, that was there took him. And uh, I don't know what happened to him because, because we had left. She was up in the OR, had one leg amputated. So that's going to happen now. I know that's happening. So, so even today, things only got worse. Nasser hospital, hospital was evacuated. It's raining now. When I was there, it didn't rain. And they're saying, you know, that it's God's blessing that it's been a good winter for us. So even though they're homeless, they're still thanking God that it's been a good winter, right? But now it's raining. And mm -hmm. so they're going in the rain, and you've seen the pictures of them going in the rain and, and all the disease that's gonna spread and the discomfort, and they don't deserve this, right? The majority are kids, because I see kids running around everywhere. But having said that, going there, my biggest hope is really, uh, you know, the, the Gen Z, people mm -hmm. in their 20s and early 30s who've come alive, who are much more intelligent than us older folks, right. who are much more uh, inclined towards justice and human rights, and are much more aware, and seek out other sources to get their information, and not just mainstream media. And they're energized for justice for all, right? And they're energized for justice in particular for the Palestinians. Because at this point in time, and I will say this, that the occupation has to end. Right, you know, and I will say that first of all, ceasefire right now, stop this. But the occupation has to end. That's the final solution. They have to have dignity and their own and the right to exist. Right. Mm -hmm. But beyond uh, beyond that, uh, I think one thing that gave me hope in humanity was that when I saw these young people in their twenties and early thirties from all backgrounds, all faiths and colors and countries, in the millions, in the millions, yeah. fighting for justice. I say, you know what, you know, when they, what, in 15, 20 years from now, when they take over the world, right, as they will, that's, that's life, and we're old and retired or whatever, and I hope, I, I hope I'm alive, then maybe we'll see that justice. I hope we see it sooner, right? But at least I know we'll see it because their generation is energized. So when I came back from Gaza, that gave me hope again. I still uh, I cling to this this idea. I believe it to be true that all 
regardless if you're black, white, brown, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, whatever label you want to attach to a human, I think generally most people want the same thing. If you really dig deep, I'm not talking at the material surface level, but generally people want, they want peace, they want security, they want food on the table, they want to be able to just know that their immediate world is safe. And I think that's irrespective of who they are. Well, you know, that's, um, sorry to interject, yeah. but the Palestinian are, are, are an ancient culture. Right. There's Muslims, Christians, and Jews, right? Palestinians, they're an ancient culture, and exactly, that's all they want, mm-hmm. right? They want, uh, they have dreams and hopes, and they want peace and security. They want to be able to raise their kids and enjoy life and live life. That's exactly, and, that, and that's, these are normal people right. Uh, right. that I interact with. They're just like you and I, yeah. and that's all they want. So give them the chance, right? Absolutely. You know, give them that chance to live with dignity and, and be independent. I think what uh, what gets in the way of that is unfortunately just the, we, we find ways to divide people, sometimes which for what seem like trivial reasons to begin with, and then those, those divisions exasperate. And then we create these incentive structures in a way that fractures society further, right? Like instead of seeing that this other person, two people of two different backgrounds might both love the same sport or they have the same interests and passions in music or whatnot. Like there's something human that I believe that conversation is the one tool that we have left to make the world better. Every other tool for the most part is destructive. And we are just by design, the species that we are, we will never agree on everything. And if, in my humble opinion, if we agreed on everything, we'd be pretty boring and we'd probably have been long gone as a species. It's that that diversity of opinion and thinking and whatnot that really matters, but we allow it to separate ourselves from one another, which is the the thing that I think is is really really the tragedy here. And I'm not I'm not asking this question at a political level in terms of, you know, what, you know, two state, one state. That's not the spirit of the question at all. How do we move past this like how do we reconcile with uh the people who are suffering and with ourselves for allowing this to happen you know i i think the only way to reconcile this is to move forward i think that People who've done this have to be held accountable. That's common sense. I think people who've done this have to be held accountable for sure. But beyond that, and that's for the courts to decide, for the UN and the international courts to decide that and how to do it and when to do it and whatever. But I think going forward, there has to be a ceasefire and people have to seriously, for the first time ever, talk talk with regards to a a resolution and the only resolution really is to give these Palestinian people freedom right they've been occupied for 75 years that can't go on you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. and you know and if you look at history right um, any kind of sort of colonial type project has eventually come to an end and so I really think in my opinion 
Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side at peace. I really think so. I'm very optimistic, and I think I think, but but we have to we have to actually actually want that because we without that I don't see any peace. I just see more suffering, more killing, more war, right? It really struck me in the last few months, but few weeks in particular, how much difference leaders make. It is always an obvious thing, um, but I, I feel like even the, the most well-meaning population can seems pretty quickly be hijacked by bad leadership. And uh, I, you know, it, it, sometimes it feels like there's very little good leadership anywhere right now. There's some places where it's far worse, but what would you, if you had the audience with, you know, some of the most powerful leaders in the world, with everything that you've seen, just as a human being, if you could have their attention right now and you could look them eye to eye, what would you say to them? Justice and humanity. I mean, look look at humanity and justice. I, I'd, I'd open their eyes to the suffering of, of the Palestinian people. I'd say go visit them, talk to the average people, like talk to them. I think a lot of people, uh, even even a lot of Israelis that I know, some, some of them are my friends and, and even, you know, that, uh, people of the Jewish faith that I've seen that have actually gone and spent time in the West Bank, have spent time with the Palestinians and talked to them, have come back changed because you get to see how it is for them, what they experience on a daily basis, right? Once you see what the Palestinians have experienced on a daily basis for 75 years, you'll know that that's not justice and there has to be some kind of justice, right? In the end, I hope humanity will prevail. I'm hopeful. But the only way for there to be peace is for both Israel and Palestine to coexist. I, I don't see any. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i just an average Joe mm-hmm. who really is a humanitarian. And to me, a patient is a patient is a patient, no matter what background they come from. If they need to be healed, I will heal them, no matter where I am and where they are and who they are. I don't, even, I don't even think twice about that at all. It's not even, a, you know, it's just, it's just what I do. But, but having said that, just as an average Joe, it's logical that this will continue forever unless both sides learn to coexist peacefully together. Uh, just to, to flip that question a little bit, if you had the audience with 50 kids right now, like, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, half Palestinian have Israeli Jewish kids. What would you say to them? You're all the same. Um, you know, you are exactly the same. You, we're all human beings. So we all have the same interests and same likes. We may speak different languages. We, we may look different, but we're all the same. We're all equal. We're all in this together. We're all in this world together, right? And just respect each other, you know? respect each other, respect the differences, look at what things are similar, right? Um, the occupation's gotta end. That's the only way you'll have peace. You have to give them dignity and you have to give them a state where they can live in, in, mm-hmm. in freedom and dignity and be productive and raise their kids and raise generations and exist peacefully with Israel side by side. That's, I mean, this is, I think, I mean, what I'm saying is, is what most people believe, right? Now, will that translate to leaders? I, I, I pray that there's strong leaders out there that will be visionary and will be able to make that change. We haven't seen that yet, 
you know, maybe in the past we had some glimmer and maybe some leaders, but, but it hasn't happened for a long time. So I don't know where it's going to happen. So that's why I'm hoping that the current generation of people who are like in their 20s, yeah. when they become leaders, they'll remember this and they'll say, you know what, justice first and humanity first, right? And they'll make the right decisions, I hope. Yeah, sir, you have been beyond generous with your time. Where can people find out more about you and what's what's important to you? Like, just so that they can kind of hopefully come to some of the realizations and internalize some of the things that, that you've shared here. You know, all this has fallen on my lap. I never really kind of expected this. I just do what I do because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm for the purpose of doing it, which is really to help people stop suffering. That, that's why I do it. It motivates me. It inspires me uh, to do more. It, it inspires me to be a better human being and a better father uh, for, my, for my children. And um, that's all. I think this is the last question. Your patients know, or do most of your patients know, like, you know, where you were and come back and how have they received you? How have they, how, how have they, has it taken people by surprise? Like, do people even A lot of surprise. A lot saw me on TV and said, I saw you on TV. And, uh, but, you know, almost all my patients, like, who have seen me. So a lot of my patients have seen me. And about, uh, I'd say almost all of them, and if not all of them, have been really proud have been very impressed, have thanked me for going, and um, have just said that they really respect what I did. So they've all looked at it in a very positive way, and that's been actually very encouraging for me. I've never had that happen because I've done a lot of missions, and most people don't know about it, right? Because it doesn't make the news, mm -hmm. or it's not publicized. I don't have a website where I put them all on, for example, you know, and, and so there's, there's no way you can find out what I do. And this is what I prefer, I prefer to do things quietly in the background because you know i i want to make sure that my intentions are are clear and sincere right gaza is different it's because it's because it's so it's so topical it's everywhere people are talking about it a lot of millions of people have been affected by this indirectly or directly and also i felt that given everything going on if i can be a voice for the a voice for the people of gaza to educate the world of their suffering and to stop all of this then so be it, right? right. Well, I mean, um, for what it's worth, I, and I can appreciate and respect you kind of working in uh, anonymity and just doing the right thing, but you can't be what you can't see. And somewhere out there, someone's going to see you and just be inspired to do whatever it is that they can do in some way to make the world a better place. Um, yeah, sir, thank you just thank you. so very much. Thank you. All right, we, uh, we're out. You've been listening to the Awoken Word podcast. Or at least, I think you have. Or maybe it just came on and you left the room and right now I'm talking to no one. But on the off chance that you actually did listen to the entire episode and you liked what you heard, there's a lot of ways that you can support Awoken Word. First of all, definitely subscribe to the podcast. We are available on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And of course, all of this content is available on our website at www.awokenword.com. You can also connect with us over social media. On Instagram, we are at Awoken Word Podcast. On YouTube, Facebook, and X, 
formerly known as Twitter, we are at Awoken Word. If you've liked what you've heard, definitely spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your siblings, tell the crazy half-naked guy in the apartment across the street. Tell your pet iguana. If you feel like spreading the word amongst some ferns, go for it. However you see fit, spread the word. Like many others, we're trying to build a better world through meaningful conversation. And if you'd like to discuss any of the topics or the conversations that we've had here in your own podcasts, please feel free to do so. If you have questions, if you have recommendations for new guests or new topics, definitely do reach out. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Anuj Rastogi. Peace out.